Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Okay, but I want to start off first by inviting Gary Kloffenstein to come up. Um, I'm actually going to have him share a testimony of something that's happened. It has to do with what we're studying together this morning out of God's Word. So uh, if you guys know Gary, amazing guy, amazing family. His wife, Candace, Lane and Joel, his kids. I never get this kind of applause, so I'm going to sit and let you know. Go ahead, Gary. Share share a little of what God's been doing. Can you hear me? Is this on? Okay. Um, You know, I think it's so awesome talking about the radical church. And last week, James talked some about um, who we are. And once we know who we are, then we can step into what we're supposed to do and, and, and how to be, which I think is just so cool. But anyway, he asked me to share um, a testimony, and I actually have two, and I want to go through them really fast. Um, but they're both about healings of hearts, like actually healing of hearts. Um, the first one is, and this took place not at church service, not in our Friday prayer thing, but like in, in the business world. So I was having a business lunch with the guy. Um, he was sharing that he was he's a little bit older than I am, um, and he was sharing that he was born with a small hole in his heart. And I guess that's pretty normal that a lot of people are, and most of the time it goes away by about the time you're one. And um, But for some people it doesn't go away. And so he had this small hole in his heart, which wasn't life-threatening or anything, but just something that needed to be monitored as he got older. And he just said, I'm kind of anxious about this. I'm going to see my doctor on Friday. And um, I've just, it's not a big deal, but I'm just kind of anxious. And I said, hey, can I just pray for you? And he's like, sure, that'd be great. So I prayed for that. And I prayed for his anxiety to leave or his anxiousness, but also for Jesus to heal that hole and have it go away. And I said, make sure you come back and tell me on Friday after your doctor's appointment once you find out. So Friday he said, I got the scan done on my heart. The hole's gone. Thank you. Wow. So his heart was healed. Amazing. Um, this was just like a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Another really quick testimony about a healing of a heart. There was uh, somebody that our family knows was over for dinner. And um, we were asking him if he had some hopes and dreams and things we could pray for. And he says really, really concerned about another heart issue that he had, or a heart issue. And it was about um, his heart was beating at a lot less capacity than it was supposed to. And it was slowly getting worse. And this guy was not in good shape. Again, older guy. Um, and he asked if we could just pray for that. So we did, and, or we asked him if we could pray, and he said yes. And so when we prayed for him, prayed not just that it like, would stop getting worse, but that it would actually go back to normal and go back to the way it should be because that's the way that it's created, and there are no weak hearts in heaven, and they're all pumping at full speed and full power. And so we prayed for that. And um, he had his, his um, doctor's appointment came up a few weeks later. He called me up and said he went back to the doctor, and his heart was normal. And during that time, he had not gone like on a diet or gotten exercise or did anything at all or changed medications to heal his heart. God just healed his heart and brought it back to normal. And this is what I wanted to end on. He said to me, he said, I don't understand how God could love me enough that he would want to heal my heart. And so not only did God heal his heart, but I had the opportunity of talking to him and praying with him about how much God loves him and that God loves us all so much that he wants to not just heal the hole in our heart and the, the pumping that's not happening, but he wants to heal our hearts in every way. Yeah, that's so awesome. Thank you, Gary. Oh, amazing. So you'll see as we, as we go through today why I wanted Gary to come up and share right at the top. Like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hustle. The screen behind me is going to get a workout on scriptures uh, so you can turn there if you want, but I'm, I've got most of them behind me. We're, we're concluding our series today that we've been in for the last four weeks, Ordinary Radicals, the God Who Saves and His Audacious Church. 
And we've been studying the way that God has actually intentionally designed the church, both in the makeup of the church and in the mission of the church, who the church is and what the church is supposed to be about. That is, what are we supposed to be doing in partnership with God? And last week, we reminded ourselves out of the first chapter of John that in verse 12, John writes to us, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that when you and I place our faith in Jesus, it's we are instantly reckoned with the right of being fully God's children. That's an incredible transaction that we could preach for months and months and months on. But we're not going to do that today. So that's just who we are. We are God's children, and we need to start at that place. Now, remember, last week, if you weren't here, I put a picture up on the screen of my son, Gideon, who is three, and I put a picture right next to him of me when I was three, back in 1984, and it's startling. (laughs) We're the same kid, and that's because Gideon doesn't have to try at all. He doesn't have to exert any effort in order to display my DNA, because he has my DNA, like it or not. This is his roadmap. You know, grow it where you got it, bud. But that's, he has my DNA. And we discovered that a radical church is simply a church that just displays the DNA of her father. You and I are, are God's children, and as a radical church, we simply display the DNA of our, of our father. And we, we discussed a little bit that radical is a little bit of a buzzword today. It gets thrown around a lot, but it essentially reduces to two meanings that we see the most. One is a, an, an intense desire to transform that which must necessarily be transformed. There's something that has to be changed, and we want to transform it. Therefore, we're radical. There's also... The, the, the nature of being radical, that just means you're kind of at odds with what the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the overwhelming mainstream thinking. You're, you're at odds with that. Oh, they're, they're, they're radical. And we discovered that God actually has both of those things for his radical church. Transforming what has to be transformed and also being at odds with our world. God has both for us. Firstly, we're radical because we do partner with God. To continue all that Jesus began to do and teach, as it says in the first verses of Acts. We partner with God to continue all that Jesus began to do and teach in bringing the transformational power of his kingdom. We are actually, you and I, transformed. You're a transformer. That was my dream when I was four, whatever. You are transformed. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if if you've... It's a very familiar verse, but we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Quite literally, the old has gone, the new has come. A a transformation has taken place. But you and I are not just transformed. We are also being transformed. Don't you love it when God does that? Completed and happening. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now listen to this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. We have been and are being transformed. Amazing. We are also partners in bringing God's transformation. 
We are transformed, we are being transformed, and we are partners in bringing God's transformation. Jesus himself multiple times speaks about this. I'll just reference two. I don't even know if these are behind me. But Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. There's an intention of bringing the transformation. He says in John 14 verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do what I have been doing, and they will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So built into the intentionality of the Father sending Jesus is Jesus saying, by the way, I will be going back to the Father. And we discovered last week that just as Jesus was once bodily here, you and I are now the body of Christ here, continuing all that he began to do and teach, transformed, being transformed, and bringing transformation. We are radical because we partner with God in transforming that which must necessarily be transformed. God has always intended us to both partake in and participate in the bringing of his transformation. Yes? We okay? We're also radical because the way we live in partnering with God will be at odds with the world. And it's not that God is asking us to just be anti-world. You ever get that feeling? It's just kind of fun to be anti-world. That's not what God is asking us to do. God actually created you and I to be in perfect harmony with a perfect world that he also created. And line by line in the creation account in Genesis, God declares certain things, but mostly that it's good, it's good, it's good. God God decided from the outset that you and I would be in harmony with the world, but we know what occurred. Sin entered the world. You and I are sinful. The world is sinful. The world is therefore broken. The world is therefore off its perfection from a holy God and therefore needs to be restored. And when we live according to being partners with God in bringing his transformation, the result will be we're at odds with the world. It's not just be anti-world. It's bring the kingdom, which will look at odds with the world. Yes, we're radical because in partnering with God, we are at odds with the world. Jesus himself in John 16 said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. He had been speaking to his disciples for, in, for a while, several chapters. And he's concluding with the ways in which the world will oppose them. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So, A radical church is one who displays the DNA of her father. A radical church is a people who have been transformed and are being transformed daily, who partners with God to transform what must be transformed and therefore will find herself at odds with the world, even though the world yearns deeply for Jesus. It's who we are. It's who we are. And today our focus is going to continue from it's who we are to it's how we live. It's how we live. And we've been looking at the early church to sort of get our hands into the mix of what the first expression, biblical instruction given to this group of people called the church, beginning to display the intentional design, beginning to display the DNA of God the Father. And we've been reminding ourselves that we need to avoid a couple of things when we look at the early church. We need to first avoid idolizing the early church and therefore kind of being dismissive about our current day and age. Remember we said, you know, oh, 
one day when we're in heaven, isn't it going to be great to run up to the apostle Paul and ask him what it was like? And he's probably going to say to you, you can read what it was like. What was it like in 2018? There's a specific age now that you and I together are privileged to live in. So we don't just look back at the early church and go, ugh, church today, wow, can't stand it. No. But we also, at the same time, are not dismissive of the early church to say, well, you know, we've progressed culturally a lot today. And some of that stuff, to be honest, is a little icky, and I'm going to pick and choose, and we'll go with what I like. The Bible doesn't speak of an early church. The Bible speaks of the church. So what we see in the early church is God's the church, that biblical instruction and expression. And we've been observing key characteristics and expressions of this church that denote its radical nature in displaying who the Father is. And I want to quickly recap some of that radical nature that we've seen expressed, okay? Here comes the zoom. You ready? Stick with me. First of all, the early church functioned on the reality of Jesus' lordship. Jesus is not just Savior, but he's Lord. He has the full right of both commission and command on our lives. And he, pres- he possesses the sole and preeminent authority over our lives. And we are completely yield to him. He's the good shepherd and Lord, and none of that conflicts with his position as Savior. Jesus is Lord. In light of that, we are a sent people. We are a sent people. There's built-in partnership that God has intended for us. There's an intentional design for us to participate in God's purposes. Jesus commissioned us over and over and over again in Scripture. Go, go to the very ends of the earth, teaching them to, to obey all I've commanded you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. There is a constant, constant message of being sent. We are sent people. The early church had, and we need to have that constant understanding of being commissioned in partnership with God. Jesus is lordship, and we are sent. The early church functioned with the audacity to use their homes as tools to advance God's kingdom. Acts 2, verse 46 says, They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Our homes are places of rest, but they are not places of avoidance. They are not places of retreat and hiding. If someone is welcome to our home, they are welcomed into our lives. And since the church is a people and not a building, that actually when you invite someone over to your home, you are inviting them to church because you are there, because the church is you. And that our homes actually are the secret weapon for inviting people to be introduced to the Jesus that you and I actually know. Eating in their homes, breaking bread with glad and sincere hearts because the church is a people, not a place. We see in the early church that God moves in power, advancing the gospel on the edges of society. On the edges of society. What do I mean by that? Uh, it means that, you know, last week we, we talked about church growth manuals, right? And church growth ideas and keys. And remember I get like 50 emails and 10 pieces of mail a week, and they all know exactly how to grow the church. But it all involves getting the people out there in here. But what we see in Acts is that the gospel actually advances on the edge of society in two ways. Firstly, with the people who society naturally pushes to the edge, the marginalized and the vulnerable, the people given less worth, the people who uh, probably aren't referenced a lot in the church growth manuals, like that lame beggar that Peter and John met walking into the temple in Acts 3. And as they walked past him, 
They didn't pull out their manual and say, I don't know, is this, kinda, is this who we're looking for? Yes, it's who you're looking for. And what happens? The beggar is healed, and instantly Peter and John preach the gospel, and then they're arrested. And that's the second way that we see the gospel advancing on the edges. It's on the edges of what man and the world consider to be legal, right, or even correct, or even good, or even loving, because the world doesn't define that. It's on the edges that God exploded their growth. Because you know what? God writes the best church growth manual on the edges of society. We saw that the early church has had, and we have, an understanding that we are the body of Christ. The understanding that God has uniquely formed us in that way, made up of many distinct parts, unified, drinking of one Holy Spirit. And it's not just a body for the sake of unity, although that is contended for, but we are a trained, called, intentional, mobilized priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And we've been given something very specific to impart to others. Second Corinthians verse 5, we're continuing one verse later from when we're described as new creations in Christ. We pick it up in verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, watch out, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. This is good news. Listen to this. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are a body that is out to reconcile people to God. A body that is out to reconcile people to God. Not just to be in these four walls. A radical people. Transforming what must be transformed and at odds with the world. You guys okay? All right? So we're going to complete this picture today in our study of the radical church with a few more key characteristics that I want to go through. And then we're going to celebrate being the radical body of Christ by taking communion together. The next characteristic that I want to look at of the early church is that God has designed his church to be shepherded, equipped, overseen, and most of all served by leaders. God's intentional design of leaders. Now, I'm not saying that the church is centered around leaders, but it is activated and propelled by them, galvanized and led. We have to recognize God's thinking on leadership before we slip into our own understanding of leadership again. This is really important because what kind of leadership have you experienced in your life? It's probably run the gamut, right? Uh, you, you've, you've maybe had some beneficial leadership. You maybe had some fostering leadership that really brought the best out of you. You probably have also experienced some leadership that's been belittling, condescending, degrading in your value or minimizing of, of your worth. And we have to, we, we, depending on our leadership experience, we can't bring that to be laid over what God has always said about leadership because God's thinking on leadership didn't start with the church. He's always had... Uh, he's always had a way of thinking and an approach to raising up leaders that he just continues as he raises up leaders in the church. And here's what I mean by that. God's design of leadership for his church falls within what he's already stated. Not exaltation, but servanthood. Not exaltation, but servanthood. In Mark 10, Jesus describes this to his disciples. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. 
Do any of your leaders lord it over you? Don't answer that. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus says, did not come to be served, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you guys ever listen to Salty, the singing songbook? Anybody? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Salty, man. Some of us grew up in the Bible Belt. Sorry. But if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Leadership is an, God's design of leadership is an extension of what his way of leadership has always been. It's why he sent his son. And that is if you want to lead, you serve. Leading is serving. If, if leadership in the kingdom of God was a job posting, it would offer great benefits and lots of opportunity for downward mobility. Because, and because leadership in God's kingdom is servanthood focused, it can be severed from someone's value. Leadership doesn't carry more value in the kingdom of God because it's all about exalting others' value. Nowhere in the Bible does God assign value along with leadership. He assigns function to leadership, which we'll get to in a minute. But all the questions of value, of your value, were answered in two key places. Lots of key places, but I want to bring up two. Genesis 1, he created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Value question number one, answered. John 3, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Value question number two, answered at the cross. Leadership and any discussion of it is not a question of value. It's not a discussion of value. Put them to rest. So how does the function, the role of leadership take, place, take shape in God's kingdom? Well, it shapes according to roles and it shapes according to season. Did you know that you're all called to lead yourselves? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, all throughout the New Testament, you're actually called to be a leader of yourself. Did you know that we're all called to submit to one another in love? In Ephesians chapter 5, before we get into any of the husbands and wives and all that stuff that you love to post about, that Paul actually says submit to one another in love. Watch out. We're called to watch over one another in that way. And then, yes, in, in season, in this role, a husband is called to oversee and lead his marriage. Parents are called to oversee and lead their children. Serve, 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 just like Jesus came to serve. And when you have a doubt about serving, err on the side of serving. It's de-exalting to serve and lead in the kingdom of God. So what leaders do we see raised up in the church? What specific roles and, and offices? Well, we actually only see two in Scripture. We see elders and we see deacons. And there's a whole sermon series to do on each. And as you can see, I am trucking to get through this. So we're not going to go into to all of them. But deacons, deacons were born in Acts 6 out of situational serving. They were born out of situational need to serve and lead in that regard. And they're not just grunt workers. All my deacons, right? Not just grunt workers. The Bible says that they were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. 
And as a result of their administration and their empowered service and serving the body and yielding to the Lord in this way, the Bible says the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased rapidly, and large numbers became obedient to the faith because of the deacons. Come on. And then the Bible mentions elders. Elders are the shepherds, the pastors, overseers that bring governance to the church. That's their function. It's not their value. It's their function. Remember, value questions have been answered. They're not overbearers, but overseers. And the life qualifications you can read very clearly in Scripture in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5. And just to reference 1 Peter 5, let's listen to what Peter, who also was an elder, says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in his glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's people. Of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Downward mobility. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And as an elder, a very imperfect one, my function, my role, my primary focus is that you and I, we are growing in our intimacy with And listening to Jesus. My focus is that you and I, we, are growing in our understanding of Jesus' lordship. That's maturity. And we serve to oversee and steward and quite literally cover and protect the family of God. That's God's functional design of a servant leader. So just real quick, I know there's a million more things we can preach on leadership. But what what is your view of, of God's, of leadership in the church? What is your view? Have you evaluated more than you've celebrated? Have you been hurt in the past? Do you have a value assignment associated with leadership or a lack of it? Do you step aside until a leader just provokes you? Not that I've ever provoked anybody. Or do you look to serve, to grow, to mature, to actively engage because all value questions have been answered? It's radical. It's radical. Servant leaders are radical because they equip and lead the church to transform what must be transformed, and it's at odds with the world. I'm going to say it about 20 more times before we're done. Servant leaders, faithfully guiding and stewarding the people of God, help to unleash another characteristic of the early church. You guys okay? And that characteristic is this, generosity. Generosity. Did you know that in God's design for the church, there's complete built-in security? There's complete built-in security. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, as individuals, our life and identity is completely secure in the person of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a pretty safe place. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's complete security of your identity in Jesus. There's also complete security in the fact that Jesus is actually the head of his church. Two human offices, elders and deacons mentioned, only one head mentioned. It's Jesus. Colossians 1, and he is the head of the body, the church. Which in the Greek means he is the head of the body, the church. You are hermeneutic experts. There's also the security that God sees us and provides for us always. Philippians 4, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. It's way more than a magnet on your fridge. 
So, so follow me here. Because of this security, the church is actually the only group, organization, people, whatever you want to call us, in the history of history that actually doesn't have to contend for its own sustaining. It actually, we don't actually have to contend for our own continuance because God sustains us. Any human group, no matter how noble their cause, no matter how noble their constitutional charter, at some point, part of what they do has to be their own sustaining or else they're not there. But Jesus says, lay your life down. Jesus says, I'm the head of the church. My God shall supply all of your needs. So we're actually free from the worry of our own sustaining because of the security we find with our identity being in Jesus. And security begets freedom, and freedom begets generosity. Freedom begets generosity because because my God will meet all my needs, I'm free to be generous in lean times or abundant times. I'm free to be generous with time, with gifts, with money, with Anything else, I'm, fr- I'm free. I'm free to be generous without condition, without strings attached. And I'm free to be generous hilariously <laughs> with risk and abandon. And that's an expression of faith. In Acts 4, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. What? brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone who has need. Also, the church in Philippi, who literally hardly ever had anything, had a reputation for being the most generous church ever. What you have, the amount, is not a precursor to the generosity you can, you can have. Because there's no season or situation in life that disqualifies us from generosity. The security in Jesus brings freedom from worry and brings generosity. It's generosity that's radical both in its conception and its expression. Because it's rooted in the security of our lives being in Jesus Christ. So, are you generous? Have you disqualified yourself from generosity? Have you said, well, one day in a certain season of life when things look like this, I'll be generous. I just, that's an expression of a lack of freedom. I just feel like the Lord is saying, even to some of you right now, you're freer than that. You're freer than that. Yes? You guys looking at me like, we're okay? (laughs) So all of these displays of the DNA of of our Father, all of this partnering, faith-filled, wanting to transform what must be transformed, living at odds with the world, all of this is amazing. It gets me excited. I hope it gets you excited, but it also makes me itch a little bit if we don't, if we leave out our last characteristic of the early church, of the church. God's demonstrated power. God's demonstrated power. You know, there's nothing we love more today than a good argument. Maybe it's just me, but we, why do we like to argue? Because we get to employ our airtight wise and persuasive words get to become Shakespeare on whatever issue we're talking about and even better I get to show you how you did not employ your wise and persuasive words in every place that you lack and it's just delicious fun isn't that the way isn't that the arena of the world and it's so hard to carry a different calling card and things can be argued into and argued out out of very very easily but is it possible to go a different way. Can it be done? 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. That's not good for arguing. With great fear and trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on, God's, but on God's power. The radical church, displaying the DNA of her father, is designed, is intended to operate in God's freely given, unadulterated power through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that again. The radical church, displaying the DNA of her father, is designed, intended to operate in God's freely given, unadulterated power through the Holy Spirit. Paul writing here in 1 Corinthians is an arguer's arguer. He was not just a Pharisee back when he was Saul. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee, he says. An impressive one. I'm talking like impressive. Would have loved to seen some of his arguments. And here he says, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He knew what we needed to know. That human arguments come and go. Words succeed and words fail. And I'm not saying we don't contend for faith. And I'm not saying we don't place our words into the arena to contend for what God would have happen. But I'm just asking, what's our end game rooted in? Is it rooted in our arguments of words? Or is it rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Remember, we're talking about a radical people who are contending for radical transformation. And that only comes by God's power. It only comes by God's power. There is so incredibly much more to preach here, but we can't. We can't. God has called us to be filled, continually baptized in the Holy Spirit. Can't preach on that right now. Want to? He's called us to walk in the power of the gifts he freely gives. Can't preach on that, but we did in the summer. It's on our podcast, on the Eagerly Desired <laughs> series. Go and listen. Having eyes that see as God does and asking, Lord, continually, where can I pray? Who am I, who am I on the phone with today? How can I pray for you, Gary asks. Do you have dreams? Do you have, oh, I have this going on in my heart. Awesome. Can we pray? The Lord moves in power. And what happens when the Lord moves in power? What is also the power of God for salvation? The gospel. And we see the early church, especially, as, especially Peter and John, when God moves in power, they take the opportunity, they share the gospel, and God exponentially grows the church by bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ because their faith is not resting on a message of human wisdom but on a demonstration of this lame beggar is walking. power of God. I'm so off my notes. I'm, it's excruciating for me how, how flyover we're being with the power of God, but we're contextualizing it in, in the, the topic of a radical church. I want to dive so much deeper, but here's the question. Do you wake up every day expecting and asking for God to use you, for the Holy Spirit to fully move through you with a demonstration of his power for the purpose of glorifying Jesus and drawing hearts to him? Do we do that? 
Do we do that? Because if we have a position, if we have a posture of like, man, I would love for that to happen, but I see some people doing it, and I hear about it, and I've read their books, and that's cool, uh, but it's just not me. But if we're if we're sitting over here and we don't ask and expect and at least desire it, it's not going to change. The Lord intends for His radical church to operate in His freely given power, and that's radical. God's power is the currency that purchases transformation. The currency that purchases transformation. So we have, this, we have this summary picture of this radical church. All the things that we've been discussing over the last month. And we're getting a sense deeper and deeper of the God who saves and the audacious, incredibly, uniquely designed church that he has intended. And you know what? You're not a spectator. You're not a spectator. And each local church... We're way more than, and I know this phrase, and I'm not trying to harp on this phrase, but we're way more than just doing life together. We're way more than hashtag doing life together. And I get what we mean by that phrase, and I love doing life together. But we're way beyond doing life together. Can I submit to you that we are on mission together? Because I count it an honor to be in this day, in this age, in this room, in this church, in this city, in this nation, at a time when God has intended me to be here and he has intended you to be here and we're in the same room. And I'm just privileged beyond belief to be here with you. We're a body, a family that is on mission together because God has placed us together right now. So God is calling us deeper into this idea of being on mission as church in the city. And we've been expressing this for a few weeks now. Next Sunday, we are going to begin a 10-week series on expressing the sharpening that God has done with who we are. What we hold to unswervingly. How we express that to the world. What, is, what are our values? What are the things that galvanize us and contend to express to a world that Jesus Christ and only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And no one comes to the Father except through him. And I've been at church in the city for almost 12 years. It's a third of my life. You do the math. And I can say this. When I walked into church in the city, it was 30 people soaking wet. I think these next three months will be the most significant season in the, in the history of this church since it was planted in 2004. As an elder, as your friend, as the dude who's talking, it's going to be the most significant season. So can I look each of you in the eye and say, be here on these weeks. Be here on these weeks. I couldn't be more honored to be on mission with you. I couldn't be more honored. I want to invite the worship team to, uh, to come up where you guys are. We're going to celebrate being the church. I feel like I just threw a lot of stuff out and talked really fast, but I'm trusting that the Lord is painting a picture and that it's, and that it's resting. We're going to celebrate being the radical church together by doing one last thing that Jesus commanded the radical church to do, and that is celebrate and remember him with communion. By taking bread together that symbolizes his body that was broken for us, and by drinking the cup together that symbolizes his blood that was shed to make a new covenant to purchase our new creation-ness. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and King of your life, I'm going to invite you up in just a moment to partake. And can I just say, if you have never given your life over to Jesus, expressed your faith and belief in him as fully God, fully King, fully Lord, can I just say today is the day? 
Today is the day that you can be 100% for sure at peace with God forever and enter into his abundant life given only through Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.